Good morning. It's a little, that was a little lackluster there, people. We need to wake up a little bit. It is cold outside. How many of you are happy about the cold? You know, we should be content in whatever state we find ourselves. At least it's not snowing. I wish it was snowing. If it's going to be cold, it might as well snow. That's my feeling on it. So would you stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning? Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, and I know in your bulletin it says, starting in verse number 4, I'm going to start in verse 1. Verse 1, Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1, we're picking up here at the end of the death, the execution of Stephen, and verse 1 begins where we left off last week. And Saul approved of his, them being Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But... There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ... They were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. 
Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. With the stoning of Stephen, we see a great persecution ignited against the early church. What is clear at this point in the church's history is that preaching the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus will not endear you to the Jewish establishment. In fact, it will get you imprisoned and possibly killed. The main opponent, we find, of the message regarding the kingdom in the name of Jesus is identified as a man named Saul. We're going to see more about him here in the next chapter, a couple of weeks. Verse 3 tells us that Saul was ravaging the church. He was seeking to destroy it, tear it down one believer at a time. But this great persecution served to accomplish the will of God. Do you see that there? The great persecution headed by Saul actually served to accomplish the will of God. The early church was scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, and those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Jesus had told his followers, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. See, the persecution from Saul and the religious leadership in Jerusalem doesn't snuff out the flame of the gospel. It fans it. Nothing. This is what we learn here. Nothing, and I mean nothing, can stop the spread of the good news of God's kingdom and of God's appointed king, Jesus. This news of the kingdom and of the name of Jesus is destined for the ends of the earth and the end of the ages. Nothing will stop it. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be attempts to stop it. Indeed, the entirety of both earthly and spiritual powers and dominions and thrones and rulers are all hell-bent on stopping the spread of the news somehow or some way. And that opposition, that opposition's real. Do you understand that this morning? The opposition to the good news of our king and of his kingdom, the opposition to that kingdom is real. And it's waged from every corner of the earth. Every spiritual power is against it. And that opposition comes first from the Jewish people, the very people who had received the covenant promises of God. And then comes from the Romans, and then from every earthly government from that time until this one. Do you also understand that? There's no human government that is on the side of King Jesus. It's important for us to grasp. But the opposition to the good news of God's kingdom and God's king doesn't only come from without. What we have learned in Acts so far is that sometimes the most dangerous opposition 
to this good news comes from within. We saw earlier in Acts that the love of money and material possessions coupled with a desire to be well regarded in the church was severely dealt with in the sin and death of Ananias and Sapphira. We also saw that the threat of disunity stemming from partiality was so wisely and practically handled by the appointment of godly administrators in Acts chapter 6. Who knew that administration in a church, godly administration in a church, is actually doing spiritual warfare to protect the good news of God's kingdom and God's king. Now I believe these examples, these examples and acts are given to us by God to caution us Caution the church on the dangers that reside within our walls. Indeed, within our own hearts. This morning, we come to a place in the text where we encounter another danger. Another danger from within. A danger that seeks to undermine the preaching of the good news of God's kingdom and God's king. A danger that lies close to each one of us. A danger that comes from within the chambers of our own hearts. And here it is. Today we see the danger of syncretism. The syncretism of selfish ambition. Now, I just used a big word, syncretism. And for our Moody students, we need to define that. They don't like big words. That's for you, Isaiah. Just playing, just playing. A little levity there. You're all wonderful students. Maybe we need the definition of this word syncretism. Syncretism is the blending of two or more ideas or philosophies or beliefs to make one new idea or philosophy or belief. So the taking of two or more things and putting them together to make one new thing. The dangerous syncretism of selfish ambition occurs when we take, get this, when we take the good news of God's kingdom and God's king and seek to use it for our own kingdom. It is the blending of the worship of Jesus with the worship of self. It's the blending of the exaltation of Jesus with the exaltation of self. The blending of the pursuit for spiritual growth with the pursuit of some type of gain. To put it simply, it's using Jesus and his church for yourself or for your gain. Here's the main idea. We, you and me, you and I, we must be vigilant 
in guarding against the dangerous syncretism of selfish ambition. Let's look at the text this morning and see the danger of selfish ambition and what we must do about it. Now, everyone in Israel knew that the syncretists lived in Samaria. Do you know much about that day and age? The syncretists lived in Samaria. They were the ones who had blended the worship of Yahweh with their own traditions. They had formed a new type of worship that was rejected by the faithful Jewish people. So the Samaritans had been rejected as unclean and unfit to be called Jewish. They were long considered outsiders to the covenants of promise. And this is why it's remarkable that Jesus decides to go through the region of Samaria and talk with a remarkably sinful woman beside the well in John 4. Now, once again, the attention of Jesus and the good news of his kingdom is focused on these syncretists, these Samaritans, these unworthy people. This time... The messenger is one of those prototype deacons from Acts chapter 6. Man, these guys, these guys are ruining our view of deacons, aren't they? Stephen gives the longest speech in the book of Acts. And here Stephen is powerfully preaching the gospel to the Samaritans, doing signs and wonders. Look there, verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in that city. Philip is preaching about the Messiah to the Samaritans. Here's the wonderful truth. The Samaritans who had been excluded by the Jewish people are now being included back into the covenant promises. They are being made part of the covenant people of God through his son. And there were crowds of people all paying attention to what was being said by Philip because he was doing miraculous signs to validate what he was preaching. And it's at this point here, in this mass conversion of the Samaritans, where we meet a man named Simon, a snake, who shows us, demonstrates for us, the dangerous syncretism of selfish ambition. Here is the first thing we see. The syncretism of selfish ambition looks good at first. Look at it there. Verse 9. But, but, there was a man named Simon... In contrast to what was going on, there is a man named Simon 
who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Notice what it says then. They all paid attention to him. This is the same thing that was just said about Philip. They all paid attention to Philip when he came in preaching and giving signs. They all paid attention. They, they had been all paying attention to Simon. From the least to the greatest saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him. Because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But, another contrasting conjunction, but when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about kingdom of, the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, you might say, on a first reading, where's the danger in this? Where's the danger? I don't see it. And that's exactly the point. That's why it's so dangerous. At first glance, selfish ambition is going to look like everyone and everything else. But the text goes across the street to tell us who this man is. If he was like everyone else and everything else, the text wouldn't slow down to highlight him. It also gives us important pieces of his background that are meant to lead us to understanding the meaning of what's going on. Simon was known to the Samaritans for practicing magic. He was a magician, a deceiver, someone who gained attention and gathered crowds around him by his magic. He loved a crowd. He loved attention. The man's view of himself was enormous. Did you see that there? He had a very high view of himself. And he worked to convince others of his greatness. And he was successful at it. Everyone paid attention to him. You saw the contrast there. When Philip comes in preaching, they all paid attention to him. But that, that wasn't the way it was before. Before, they were paying attention to Simon and all that Simon was doing. They all paid attention to him. And when Philip comes in, their attention goes from Simon to Philip. What do you think Simon does at that point? When they believe Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized both men and women. There's power in town that dims Simon's celebrity. And the text points out, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, now, now again, here's where people want to debate. They say, right there in the text, see, it says, Simon believed and was baptized. Surely he's a believer. The text says that he believed and was baptized. 
In fact, on the surface of it, it might be said that his conversion should be celebrated given his celebrity and his unbelievable change. But that's where we don't see the fruit, the true fruit of conversion. Did you know that when the Bible says someone believes, that belief is always up for inspection by what happens next? In Jesus' day, for example, thousands believed, and yet, by the end, there were only 120 left. We see explicit example of this in John chapter 2. John, I'm not going to read this. You don't have to turn there. John chapter 2, verse 23. Listen to this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. Talking about Jesus. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You see, when Jesus came in doing mighty signs, many believed because of the signs that were done. But Jesus knew what was in man. The details about the response of the crowd in the Contrast with Simon, I think, emphasizes for us that the people, the Samaritans, were believing upon the word proclaimed about God's kingdom and God's Son. Simon was responding by or based upon the mighty signs that were being done. Simon's response is really a reaction to what he's seeing. Simon, here's what I'm saying. Simon is concerned about one thing, and that's Simon. He responds positively to the signs and wonders, but not to the message of the kingdom. Not to the message of the kingdom and the king. He sees, and this is what it says, he sees in Philip someone who he can attach himself to that will get him where he wants to go. And this is the perversion of it. The kingdom of God is blended with the kingdom of self, the kingdom of me. He continues with Philip because he knows Philip. Philip has a power that he wants to use for his own gain. The dangerous syncretism of selfish ambition looks good at first, but it always makes itself visible eventually. Syncretism of selfish ambition looks good at first, but it always makes itself visible eventually. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen on any of them. 
but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, look at what it says here. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also. The word power there can be translated authority. Give me this authority as well. I'll pay you anything you want. I'll pay you whatever you ask. So that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. See, now you see the true character of this man. Alongside all the other Samaritans, his belief looked like everyone else's, but eventually the true character of a person shows itself. Selfish ambition will always eventually make itself known. Simon wants to use the power of God to make himself powerful. Are you familiar with the term simony? Mm-hmm. I asked my kids that. You know why I send my kids to classical Christian school, my oldest two, so they can be smarter than me. In all seriousness, I asked them that question the other day, and they were like, oh yeah, I know what that is. It is the practice of paying for position in the church. And this, this is a common practice throughout church history. Especially as the church is politicized. This is the way to make much of yourself. This is the way to grow your influence. This is the way to grow your impact. This is the way to be somebody important. This is the way to make much of yourself. So people along the way pay for positions. Did you... Realize that the Catholic Church, for a lot of its history, has not been led by godly men. It's been led by wealthy men. Or men who are well-connected. This is much of what the Reformers sought to undo and reform in the church. It's not just, though, the Catholic Church. This happens in denominations all over the place. This happens all the time, doesn't it? Surely we say this isn't present in our situation. I want to tell you, beloved, this morning that it is not only present, but it is prevalent. This is the heart of of those who are false teachers. Health, wealth, and prosperity gospel teachers who use the spiritual to oppress the vulnerable and make themselves rich. Easy to spot, right? Well, how about the businessman who joins the church to grow his network of contacts. Or the person who gives a sizable anonymous donation, quote-unquote anonymous, that he makes sure gets out to those who need to know. How about the well-connected guy who takes the new pastor to lunch to make sure he knows where his paycheck comes from? 
Now, I've experienced every single one of those on multiple occasions inside churches that we were called Bible-preaching churches. But let's uh, let's get real now. How about the person who wants to be in formal ministry because that's where the important work is done? How about the person who volunteers to lead everything but doesn't want to lead his family? How about the person who can't be quiet and listen in small groups because they want everyone to see how much they know? How about the lady that goes around the church gaining allies to her theology so that she can be a force against the elders? These also I've experienced on multiple occasions within Bible-believing churches. And, and I, I actually came up with lists and lists and lists of this. These are just summaries. But even to a deeper level, and, and I want you to hear my pastoral heart in this. I'm not, I'm not trying to hurt anyone's feelings. But how about the person who bargains with God, trying to pay God in some way in order to secure a blessing from God? I want God to be happy with me so he'll make my life the way I want it to be. My marriage, my kids, my work. How, how, about, how about the person who wants their children to serve in ministry so that they will look good? How about the person who sulks because they don't feel like their gifts are being recognized? Or the person who is upset with the pastor because he spends more time with someone else. Or the person who is angry because no one appreciates what they do. If they only knew what I did. Now, these are just examples. Again, prevalent in the church is this dangerous syncretism of selfish ambition. A concern with self. A look to the church to gain or to get something. It's important here, though, to say that ambition itself is not wrong. Godly ambition is a blessing to the church. Godly ambition is the opposite of apathy. We don't want or desire apathy towards spiritual things. However, godly ambition is happy with serving in obscurity. Godly ambition is ambitious for the glory of God, not the glory and concerns of self. The truth is that the syncretism of selfish ambition isn't just existing in the church or even just prevalent in the church. The potential for selfish ambition, and this is important, the potential for selfish ambition is in every single one of us. Well, I want to tell you this morning, you can't buy off God. You can't use the church for something that you want. The church doesn't exist to make much of us. The church exists to make much of God.
And this is why selfish ambition is so dangerous. The church can't make much of God and his son when it's busy making much of men. We can't exalt the name of Jesus while we're exalting the name of men. We won't exalt the name of Jesus when our concern is with ourselves. The dangerous syncretism of selfish ambition looks good at first, but makes itself plain eventually. The character of a man will demonstrate itself. It looks good at first, but makes itself plain eventually and requires rebuke and repentance. Look at what Peter says to him. I, I, I don't even know why I talk sometimes, and some of you are probably saying, I don't, I don't know why you talk either. But the, the Bible is so amazing. The Bible is so amazing. Look at what Peter's response to Simon is. Verse number 20. Remember, this is when Simon says, I'll pay you whatever. Just give me that power. Here's what Peter says. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Peter says, to hell with you and your money. Some of you bristled when I said that because you're like, oh, the pastor can't use that word hell. Actually, hell is a real place. And, and Peter says, that is where you and your money are going. The power of God isn't for sale, Simon. It's not here for you to use and manipulate And the fact that you are bent this way tells us where you're headed. Notice he says that Simon has no part or lot in this matter. That's what he says. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. For your heart is not right before God. Now it's possible that what Peter means by that is that Simon has no authority like the apostles have. But I think what he's, what he's actually saying outright is what I was saying earlier. Simon is not a believer. And he gives the reason. Your heart is not right before God. Men may be fooled by you, but God isn't. That's the catch, right? God sees all. Those who seek to use the spiritual for their own gain are known before God. And so, Peter says, there's only one thing to do. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Now, you may say, what is this if possible language all about? Of course it's possible. God can forgive any sin. If we turn from our sin, he will forgive us our sin. But but that's the issue with selfish ambition. 
The key in the language here that Peter uses is found, I think, in the reference he's making to Deuteronomy, the Old Testament concept found in Deuteronomy 29. It's also referenced in Hebrews. We read Hebrews earlier when we talked about uh, the root of bitterness. Esau is said to have a root of bitterness, and people think, oh, Esau must have been bitter about something. He must have been angry at somebody about something. Well, in fact, it's an Old Testament reference to a concept of a bitter root. And this is what he's referencing here. Let me read Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 29 uh, for you. Listen to this. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him. But rather, the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against this man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. You see, the heart of Simon and the heart of Esau are what what is described in Deuteronomy 29. They have a poisonous and bitter root. Their heart is not right before God. They have bad hearts and therefore produce poisonous and bitter fruit. The way it's described here by Peter, he says, I perceive that you are in the gall of bitterness. Gall is a word for the concept of bile, poison. It says you are in the poison. <laughs> you are in a poisonous prison, he goes on to say, in bond of iniquity. Both Simon and Esau have a part in the community, but their character and the character of their fruit tells you who they really are. They cannot be forgiven because that would require them to turn and to change and their hearts refuse to change. Hebrews says that Esau, remember, sought repentance with tears but could not find it. Simon is told that he is in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. His selfish ambition has created a poisonous prison that he lives in and the very nature of his sin refuses to humble his heart. It's, 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 like, it's like a tree taking the axe to its own roots. It won't do that. This is the nature of selfish ambition. It works hard to protect itself. And we see here also the response of Simon. It gives us an indication. 
of where he is. Simon answered, Peter says, repent and pray to God. Perhaps he might forgive you. Repent and pray to God. And Simon answered, look at what it says. Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Instead of repenting and praying to God like Peter says, he asked that Peter pray for him so that none of the judgment comes his way. And this is in step. This is in perfect alignment with selfish ambition, a self-centered character. He wants none of the judgment. But repentance is too hard. Maybe the apostle can say a word for me that will get me off the hook. Maybe, maybe you've had this experience and maybe not. Have you ever sat with a person, a man or a woman, who is so entangled in sin, so, so imprisoned by sin, they see the consequences of that sin. They see the destruction that it's working on their life and on their family and on their job and on their whole existence. They see the destruction of that sin but they cannot turn from it. Why? These are often the people that show up in the counseling room who desperately want the pastor to fix them, desperately want somebody to do something about what's going on in their life because they don't like it, but they refuse to repent. It's always somebody else's problem. It's always someone else's issue. Refusing to repent. And they will not be forgiven. And they will go on their way to destruction. Well, some might say here that there's not enough information to know whether or not Simon repented. It it seems kind of positive, right? Well, pray for me that this doesn't happen to me. Well, church tradition, Justin Martyr specifically, Justin Martyr was also a Samaritan, by the way. Justin Martyr tells us that Simon goes on to become the first false teacher of the early church. It was Justin Martyr's belief that he actually was the one who gave birth to Gnosticism that plagued the early church. And I believe... Whether or not all of that is the case, I do believe that what you are watching here in chapter 8 is the birth of the first wolf of the church. The first false teacher. But, again, I am not this morning concerned, first and foremost, with the false teachers out there. I mean, we could have a good time just talking about all the false teachers out there, couldn't we? We can name them all and have a good time doing that, patting ourselves on the back that we're not like any of those people. But what I'm concerned about this morning is not all the false teachers out there. I am concerned about the false teachers in here. In fact, in here. Did you you know that each one of us You've heard it said, each one of us has an inner lawyer, an inner Pharisee, right? Did you know that each one of us also has an inner false teacher? 
We all have an inner heretic waiting to pounce upon life and godliness. And that's what I'm concerned about. What, what can be done about this syncretism, this syncretism of self-interest, selfish ambition? What must we do? Old habits die hard is what I'm saying. You ever heard that phrase, old habits die hard? You know why old habits die hard? Because they don't die on their own. You have to kill them. You and I were saved out of complete self-centeredness. And I am afraid that sometimes in our culture, in an attempt to get people converted, people to pray the prayer, people to make the decision, we make Jesus and his church out to be the answer to all your problems. The way to get the happy life or the happy marriage or the happy family. You see, we take the gospel and we wrap it around you, but that's not what the gospel's about, is it? The gospel is about coming to the end of my kingdom and submitting myself to God's kingdom and God's king. And for this, Jesus the king had to die himself. He gave himself for our sin. He took the punishment that we deserve for our sin and our self-worship. He died for us. We put him on that cross. He died for us. And then he rose again and brought life and the possibility of life, the possibility of true life, the freedom from self, the freedom from that prison, that poisonous prison that all of us have lived in. He has rescued us from that. But I am afraid that, that some of us, we treat too lightly our self focus and our self-concern. So how do we kill it? We must kill the syncretism of selfish ambition. We must kill it in ourselves. Be aggressive against it. Strangle it. Refuse to give it any oxygen or any life. How do we do that? We start by seeing the urgency and seriousness of self-exaltation and self-interest in worship. It is, like I've said already, a poisonous prison that will take a soul to destruction. And it's not a small issue. Worship that is self-interested is not worship that is pleasing to God, nor accepted by God. That is not why he saved us. Listen to the words of 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us why he saved us. He died for us so that those who live in him might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. There you have it, plain as day. He died for us so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. 
That is what our life is for. It is for Him. Not for us. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus and His example of selfless sacrifice. Ask God to uproot the poisonous root of self. And this will be hard. Because by its very nature, it refuses to be uprooted. This is what I I said a minute ago. It's like the tree taking an axe to its own roots. I don't want to be cut down. I don't want to lose. But isn't this what Jesus said over and over and over again? He who seeks to save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life will save it. Don't you see that actually the way to life is by cutting the roots? Again, in counseling, this is, this is what we're trying to get people to do. Uproot. Let's uproot. Let's cut it down. Stop trying to protect yourself. Stop trying to build up yourself. Stop trying to enlarge yourself. Cut the roots. Ask God to uproot the poisonous root. And this is not easy. In fact, I can't do it. But when I look, when I look to Jesus, my self-interest and my self-preservation and my self-exaltation melt away. You've had that experience, haven't you? I want to end. I want my life to cease. And I want Him to live instead. He, He is worthy to live, not me. I deserve to die, but He died for me and rose again. And now He is worthy to live, not me. Not me. Read His Word with this goal in mind. Why why do you read your Bible? I've had that question asked so many times. I I don't know what I'm supposed to get out of this. Why am I reading my Bible? What's the point? Did you know, I tell my students all the time, the, the Bible's not an instruction manual. The Bible, you don't read the Bible so that you can get all the instructions you need for life. It's not why you're reading the Bible. You're not reading your Bible because God's going to be angry with you if you don't read your Bible. You're not reading your Bible because you're trying to make God happy or God's going to bless me. If I read my Bible today, God's going to give me a good day. That's not how it works. Why do you read your Bible? The Bible is a window. It's a window. It's a lens. The Bible's a window through which I look to see what is true, to see who God is, to see the glory of Jesus, to see the truth of his plans and purposes for all of his creation. It's a window to see. And when I see him, that changes me. It changes what I want. It changes what my desires are. It changes how I live. 
It changes my parenting. Sometimes people think that the, the Bible's like this instruction manual for parenting. The Bible's not an instruction manual for parenting. It's, it, that's not what it's there for. But the Bible, when you look through that window and you see, it changes your parenting. It transforms it. Because it transforms you. It transforms all that you want and all that you think and all that your goals are. That's why we read is to see, read God's word, praying, God, help me see the glory of your son today. Help me see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ today. Talk about Jesus with those you're in fellowship with. Talk about Jesus and his glory and what you've seen in his word. Talk about that among yourselves. Make much of him instead of yourself. When you sit in small group or when you sit in your fellowship groups, talk about Jesus. Talk about his glory. Talk about the transformation he's working in your life. Point other people to him. Encourage others with him, not yourself and not your own advice and not your own wisdom. Not your own self. Admit openly to others when you are self-seeking. Be honest about it. When you're self-seeking in your marriage. Do you know that one, one of the greatest things, husbands, that you can do in your marriage is to tell your wife, Honey, I am sorry. I have, I have been all about myself. <laughs> I have been so selfish. It's been all about me. Admit to others openly when you're self-seeking, and that's going to hurt. Again, it hurts. Admit to others when you're self-seeking in your parenting, in your work relationships, and in the church. I, I mentioned just offhandedly a minute ago, you know, the people who can't be quiet and listen in small group because they just have to let everybody know what they know and how much they've read and how, how smart they are. And that happens. That happens, doesn't it? It happens. Listen, that's, that's self-seeking it, it, it might be that you need to go back to some people that you've done that with and say, you know what, I have been so full of myself, I just can't not be quiet. <laughs> I can't listen. I'm not a very good listener. That's what really not being a good listener is all about. And, and, then, and then Paul says in 1 Corinthians, pursue love. Pursue love. Do you remember the church at 1 Corinthians? They were very gifted. They had lots of gifting in speech and in knowledge. They were so gifted, but they were divided. Many divisions existed in the Corinthian church. That's why Paul writes his letter. Paul tells them in chapter 12, 13, and 14 that they are to pursue love. Not... not not that the gifts are bad. He says the gifts are good, but, but the gifts aren't the point. Love is the point. True love for others, pursuing love for others, will kill your selfish ambition. 1 Corinthians 13. You know 1 Corinthians 13? Maybe you had it read at a wedding or something. Such an important chapter for us. 
If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, prophetic powers, wow, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, I've got all the degrees up on my wall. I've read all there is to read. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. For conclusion, I just want to do this one last thing. I'm, I'm going to read again through that. But I'm going to take, instead of love, I'm going to put the name of Jesus in that place. And I want you to hear this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not Jesus, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so it's to remove mountains, but have not Jesus, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not Jesus, I gain nothing. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on, its own, on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things. Jesus hopes all things. Jesus endures all things. This is, this is the life that Jesus lived. He demonstrated to us what real love was. That's who we need to see. And that will kill, that will kill our self-interests. And create a culture here in this church where Jesus is exalted through our love for one another and not ourselves. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the truth of it. We thank you for the transforming power of your word. The example that we have, the terrible and awful example that we have in Simon of someone who wants to use your son and wants to use your power for his own advancement. But Lord, we see here, as you've shown us, our own tendency our own potential. I pray that you would help us recognize the syncretism of selfish ambition, self-interest, 
self-centeredness, self-seeking that exists in our own hearts. And that we will see the urgency of this, the danger that it creates in our church. I pray that you would form in us, by a view of your Son, that you would form in us a love for one another that would suffocate our selfish ambition. I pray for those who are here who, who have not turned from their sin, who have not acknowledged Jesus as King, who have not received His death and resurrection as their payment for sin and their life. I pray that you would give them the gift of repentance and faith, even this morning, that they would see their life is not about them, but it it is meant to be oriented around the worship of Jesus, the proclamation of his name. I pray for that, for your glory, in your name. Amen.